Hello everybody, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Brit Podcast. So we have to start in Nova Scotia this week, of course, that is where uh, Premier Ian Rankin dropped the writ on Saturday for an August 17th vote. This is actually only the third election to take place during the month of August in Nova Scotia's history. The last ones were in 1933 and 2003, uh, so a rare summer election in Nova Scotia. Now, the province was due to have an election. Uh, the last one was in 2017, and Nova Scotia is actually the only province without a fixed election date law. So Rankin had until next year to call an election, but generally speaking, you have an election every four years. So Rankin decided to uh, call the vote during the summer. And there is, of course, lots of speculation about what impact this will have on the federal election if it happens, when it will be called. There hasn't been an overlap between a provincial and a federal campaign since 1979. Uh, so we'll see if Justin Trudeau will wait until after the election is over before calling a federal campaign, or if he will have some overlap. There's only 11 seats in Nova Scotia, so it's not um, it's not that this provincial and federal campaign would overlap for a lot of voters across the country, uh, but it, it is certainly one of the considerations. Now, just to set the table a little bit, in the 2017 election, the Nova Scotia Liberals were re-elected. They won another majority government. They took 27 seats to 17 for the Progressive Conservatives and seven for the New Democrats. Now, since 2017, four more seats have been added to the Nova Scotia electoral uh, electoral map. The Liberals would have won three of these extra four seats and the PCs would have won one of them. So the map, it's getting a little better for the Liberals, but not in a dramatic way. They need 28 seats for a majority this time, so they do actually need to win a greater number of raw seats than they did last time uh, on the uh, slightly smaller map. Now, we don't really know where things stand in the province in the polls because we haven't actually had a, a poll out of Nova Scotia since May and June. And those polls that were done uh, back then in the spring, they showed the Liberals way ahead, but by very different amounts. There was a poll by Narrative Research. They had the Liberals ahead of the PCs by 28 points. That's a lot. Now, the Angus Reid Institute, which does its own uh, quarterly polling as well, only put the Liberals ahead by nine points. Now, this was consistent with each of those pollsters' past polling, that the Angus Reid Institute tended to have uh, less of a lead for the Liberals, and the uh, narrative research had a wider lead. So we don't really know where things are. We have to wait and see whether... Uh, we see new numbers from both of these pollsters in the next couple of weeks. And if so, if we see big changes from where things were in the spring. Now, Rankin was just named the leader earlier this year. He replaced Stephen McNeil, who uh, had led the Liberals to their first win back in 2013. And he had been leader of the party even well before that. So uh, Rankin is a new face uh, for the Liberals. He's a young man. He's in his mid-30s. So we'll see how he's going to do, whether this is going to be the continuation of the McNeil government or a new face that gives the Liberals a bit of a rejuvenation. The PCs are under Tim Houston. He was uh, he is a new leader for the PCs. This is his first campaign. He's been an MLA uh, for a little while. And the New Democrats under Gary Burrell, he's the only one who's been in a campaign before. He ran in 2017 and he led the party there. Uh, and uh, the NDP is actually the last party to govern Nova Scotia before the Liberals. It was the Liberals who defeated the NDP government of Daryl Dexter back in 2013. There's also the Green Party, 
Uh, they're not a huge force in Nova Scotia, not like we've seen in the last couple of elections in neighboring no- uh, New Brunswick and in Prince Edward Island. Uh, but at last count, they have a half slate. We'll see how many more they get before uh, the uh, before the campaign period is over. There's also the Atlantica Party, which is a small party in Nova Scotia, and we'll see how many candidates they're going to have. There's a couple independents as well. We'll be watching uh, pretty closely the campaign in Nova Scotia, and once we have some more polls out of the province, There'll be lots more to talk about. Well, it it wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't discuss the Greens and what's been going on with them. It it does seem like every week there's been a new development in the story related to Annamie Paul's leadership. The last story is finally for Annamie Paul, a positive one, that the federal council uh, that is going to be replaced or a lot of it's going to be replaced soon uh, has decided that it is dropping their push to test the confidence of Annamie Paul's leadership and also are dropping the review of her membership. Development just in the last week was that the Greens were considering whether to revoke her membership, which would have disbarred her from being leader of the party, a sort of a technicality to get around uh, the non-confidence votes and all of that. They've also dropped that. So it does seem that, at least for the time being, Annamie Paul's leadership turmoil is over, though we did see some unhappiness from um, Dimitri Lascaris, who finished second in the Green Party leadership, wanting to know why this these moves had been suddenly dropped. So uh, it does seem like there is still going to be some voices within the party that are criticizing Annamie Paul and how this is all unfolded. But for the time being, and let's remember, an election could be just a few weeks away, um, it does seem like Annamie Paul does not have to worry about that in particular, that her leadership is going to be uh, removed from her in the next couple of weeks. This isn't, though, a party that is in any by any stretch united uh, behind her or within itself. Uh, so that, I think, is going to be a bit of a problem for the Greens. The Greens have always run more localized campaigns, more regionalized campaigns, focusing on a few ridings across the country that were winnable rather than trying to run a national campaign. Uh, But I think we're going to have to see even that's going to be much more of a factor here because there's going to be the campaigning of Annamie Paul. Is that going to be tied into the campaign that's taking place across the country for the Green Party? I don't know. I think this has had an impact on Annamie Paul in terms of her popularity, in terms of the popularity of the Green Party. Before Janica Atwin, the Green MP for Fredericton crossed the floor to the Liberals, the event that really sparked everything that's been going on for the last few weeks uh, the Greens were usually polling somewhere around 7-8%. That is where you would normally see them in a poll. Now we're starting to see polls that are having them closer to 5%. 5 or 6%. There was the Angus Reid poll we'll talk about later. Had them just at 3%. So this is clearly having a little bit of an impact. Now one or two points is not statistically significant. But when you're talking about poll after poll, and when you look at the patterns over the last month compared to where they were over the last months before that, there's clearly worse numbers for the Greens. This is particularly in the uh, the case in Atlantic Canada. Uh, it's now much rarer to see them in double digits in polls. That's a big problem. And it does tie into everything we've seen that it does not seem to have helped the Greens by any stretch in Atlantic Canada. Winning in Atlantic Canada now looks a lot more difficult. They won't have an incumbent MP, but the party support also seems to be dipping. Uh, so hopes that they could break through New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island might have to be put on hold for now. For Anna Annamie Paul herself, we did see some movement in her personal numbers, the Angus Reid poll. Uh, the last Angus Reid Institute poll before Janica Atwin crossed the floor, 
23% of Canadians said they had a favorable opinion of Anime Paul, and 31% said they had an unfavorable opinion. That's not great numbers. That minus eight rating was better than the last set of numbers we saw from the Angus Reid Institute. Now, her favorability numbers have gone down by four points, which isn't huge, but her unfavorables went up by 11. So now 19% say they have a favorable opinion of Anime Paul, and 42% say an unfavorable opinion. So it does seem to have hurt her own personal popularity. Uh, and since the Greens seem to have been banking on the potential for Anime Paul to have a good campaign, have a good debate, and carry the party forward that way, yeah, she's going to be starting off a little bit on the back foot. So um, we'll see if she's able to recover some of those numbers uh, and if the Green Party can start to increase its support again. If it doesn't, then the Liberals are probably pretty happy about that in Atlantic Canada, and the New Democrats are probably pretty happy about that in British Columbia. Lastly, we have to mark it. Mark Carney not running. I know, I know. It is huge news. So Mark Carney was speculated to be running in every single riding across the country, I believe. There had been, uh, it became a little bit of a joke. Uh, Catherine McKenna uh, not running again to in Ottawa Centre could open up a riding for Mark Carney. Then there was a report that Karen McCrimmon in Canada Carleton probably not running again. Maybe that could be a riding for Mark Carney. And I also saw on Twitter some uh, speculation that David McGinty wouldn't be running in Ottawa South, and that could also open up a space for Mark Carney. Well, not going to happen. Mark Carney says he's not going to run if there's an election this year. And that means that if there isn't an election this year, we'll talk about where Mark Carney is going to be running next year. But uh, I think there are a few liberal hopefuls in the auto area that are probably breathing a sigh of relief that Mark Kearney will not be seeking a nomination in one riding or all the ridings in the Ottawa area. While we're in the height of summer, and that means there's not a lot of polls, there really hasn't been a lot of polls uh, to cover in our polls of the week segment. So we're going to focus on two that did come out. And the first one was from the Angus Reid Institute. I mentioned it earlier. This poll was done between July 14th and July 16th. 1,625 people were interviewed online. The poll showed among decided voters, the Liberals at 33%, the Conservatives at 31%, the New Democrats at 20%, the Bloc Québécois at 7%, the People's Party at 4%, the Greens at 3%, and others at 2%. That included 1% for the Maverick Party. Uh, I know there's some interest in what kind of impact they're going to have, just to drill down a little bit on their numbers. Uh, according to the Angus Reid Institute, 10% in Saskatchewan and 7% in Alberta. And the People's Party was also scoring between 4 and 6% between Alberta and Ontario. Uh, so that's a lot of votes off the, off the table for the Conservatives. But nevertheless, they were at 31% and only two points back of the Liberals. The Liberals had only a four-point lead in Ontario. This poll had the impact of changing some of the narrative uh, very quickly. There's a tendency to focus on the last set of numbers and compare them to whatever set of numbers came out before that. That's a bit of a problem because every pollster tends to have different numbers. So the Angus Reid Institute poll had the Liberals ahead by two points. It seems to be a very close race. Really not much different from the 2019 election and based on those Ontario numbers, could be a lot, lot closer than it was in 2019. But wait a minute, we had all of these polls coming out showing the Liberals ahead by 10 points or more in Ontario, but also nationwide. 
Abacus data, Ipsos, Nanos. The polls are showing that the liberals are on track for a huge majority government and Aaron O'Toole's party is going down in flames. Well, I guess that's all over because this one poll came out. Let's pump the brakes a little bit. Consider where the liberals and conservatives are polling in the previous surveys by the Angus Reid Institute. In a poll they did in early June, the liberals are at 33, the conservatives at 30. Three-point gap. Poll they did in mid-May, the liberals are at 34, the conservatives are at 32, two-point gap. And at the end of April, the liberals are at 34, the conservatives are at 32, a two-point gap. So this latest survey from the Angus Reid Institute shows no shifts whatsoever of any significance going back to April. So this poll suggests that nothing has changed. Nothing has changed over the last three months. That could be the case. It could be the case that things have not shifted all that much, and the polls that have picked up a big gain for the liberals and a drop for the conservatives are catching something that's not real. But the Angus Reid Institute poll itself does not reset those other polls that were suggesting that the liberals were way ahead. If we see that Abacus, Ipsos, Nanos starts to show a close race again between the liberals and the conservatives, then we can say that this is looking a lot closer than we thought. But if we continue to see one set of polls showing the liberals way ahead and another set of polls showing the liberals only marginally ahead, we really can't say which one is closer to the truth. But here's something to consider. Aaron O'Toole's numbers in the Angus Reid poll not getting any better. Still very low favorables, very high unfavorables. It does suggest that if the conservatives are polling in the low 30s, when their leader is as unpopular as this poll suggests, within the same survey, these are the same people being interviewed, that the conservative floor could be quite, could be lower. That if they're polling in the low 30s, uh, that might be a best case scenario. Because consider that the Nanos research also put out a poll this week. Again, their update of the four-week rolling poll that they do every every week, It ended, it's a poll ending on July 16th, so the same time as the Angus Reid poll, though it ran for four weeks prior. Nevertheless, that poll showed Justin Trudeau, the preferred prime minister for 40% of Canadians, Jagmeet Singh, 18%, Erin O'Toole, 15%. Erin O'Toole was down four points from where he was a month before. These polls are existing in this at the same time. And with the conservative leader being at just 15% on best prime minister, again, it does suggest that if the conservative party is able to poll 30, 31% at a poll, it's that party brand that's doing that. And there's the potential that Aaron O'Toole could drag the party down towards him. And that is maybe what we're seeing in some of the other surveys. Uh, but it is something to consider that the idea, first of all, that the Liberals don't track for a huge majority. We have to check that. Some surveys are suggesting that's not the case. But also, the narrative that this race is actually super, super close might not be the case either. So we'll have to wait and see what more data says. The fact that we have had so few polls over the last few weeks just kind of adds to the tendency to focus on the last set of numbers because we don't really have anything to compare it with. Uh, but we'll have to be patient. Now, the questions and answers this week, uh, I wanted to just highlight two questions. I had some more good questions on Twitter. Some of them I, I, we've addressed in some previous episodes, so I didn't want to uh, repeat myself too much. But to continue with the discussion just having about the varying polls, there's a question by Adam P. McDonald on Twitter. He says, what accounts for the CPC polling being all over the place? 
Seems like it's always the same firms that have them stronger and the same ones having them always weaker. What accounts for variation among major polling firms? Now, we don't just see this at the federal level. We see this at the provincial level, too. I mentioned earlier the disparity between the two polls that we had done, uh, that we had seen in the spring for Nova Scotia. We see this in Ontario a lot. There'll be some polls that have the PCs way ahead of the Ontario Liberals and the Ontario NDP, and we'll have some other polls that'll suggest the Ontario Liberals are actually either leading or in a close race with the PCs. So it's not just a federal phenomenon. We see this in a lot of polling across the country. Now, the reason for it, we can really just speculate. There's no real proof either way because we'll only know once an election happens. During an election campaign, we rarely see this kind of disparity. We don't often see six, seven points between pollsters on a consistent basis. I think this is in part because during a campaign, people are a little bit more engaged with what's going on. Uh, there's fewer undecideds. There's less chance of uh, getting different results because of how people are thinking about politics that particular day. But there's a number of factors that contribute to this. Whether any of them is the reason for what's happening right now, I really can't say. It's, it's, it is a puzzle. But there's a couple things to consider. First off, all, virtually all the polls we're seeing were being done online. Now, this means that they're being done from a panel of respondents, and different pollsters do different things to build that panel. Some more or less rent a panel from panel providers. Others have their own panel that they recruit people to. There can be differences in that panel that are difficult to really understand what makes them different. Because while demographically they might look the same, they might be very similar to the population as a whole, there could be something politically different about one set of people in a panel versus another. There's the potential for how the question's asked. Are the leader's names included? That can have a big impact. If a leader is well-known or popular, that might give the party a little bit more of a boost. If a leader is unknown, less popular, could hurt the party a little bit. How you weight the sample can be a factor, whether you're weighting by education, whether you're weighting by past vote. This can have an impact as well. The simple fact of when the poll was conducted. Maybe you conducted the poll during a bad news cycle. Maybe it was a good news cycle for one leader. So there's all these different factors that come into play. But when you see consistently some polling firms showing one set of numbers and another polling firm showing another set, you think it, you have to conclude that it's something that is called house effects or in, in sort of the polling aggregation world. The idea that different pollsters, because of the way they do their poll, the way that they weight their poll, that there's something slightly different about it, and it gives different results in other pollsters. There's nothing wrong with that, but it does mean that we can get a little confused about what the state of, of play really is. Uh, but as I said, I suspect that once we get to the end of a campaign, there'll be a little bit less of this kind of disparity, and the disparity that we will see will be the normal kind of margin of error differences. That is, of course, the other thing to take into account. Two polls that are different by five points for a party, they can both be true if you take into account the potential margin of error. Understanding, again, and I know this is complicated, but understanding, again, that online firms, because of the way that they do their polls, a margin of error can't be calculated in the same way when you do a random sample with a telephone poll. But nevertheless, the concept is the same. That margin of error will cause pollsters doing the exact same thing to have slightly different results. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is one of those moments where we're seeing more of that, those house effects. And why it's the case, I can't say. But that's why it's really important to compare pollster to pollster rather than to different polls. If you're seeing trend lines across different pollsters, that's what's important, not 
whether a party's at 31 or 24. Another question, this one from Luke Cowan. What opportunities exist for the Conservatives in Quebec? I know early in the 2008 campaign, there were some polls that had them over 30 there. But since then, the Conservatives have stayed remarkably stable in Quebec. Yes, they have. The polls are suggesting the Conservatives somewhere around 16% support in Quebec, so literally almost exactly where they were in the 2019 campaign. And if you look at the trend line, over the last year, they've been flat, somewhere around that 16 to 18% range. Their numbers have come down a little bit over the last couple months, in the same way that their support has come down uh, across the country. Uh, but you do see that bedrock of support of somewhere around 15 16% for the Conservatives. So that does suggest that they can count on winning most, if not all, of the 10 seats they won last time. Their support is very concentrated in the Quebec City region. The fact that they are polling third or sometimes fourth in the province as a whole does not really matter because they have a lot of that support that is in just a few ridings. And a lot of the ridings they won in the 2019 uh, election were actually won by pretty sizable margins. A lot of their Quebec conservative seats are not really all that much at risk. Um, They can afford to lose some ground in those ridings and still win them by relatively safe margins. But if there are some opportunities, there's a couple. You look at Trois-Rivières and Beauport-Limoilou. These were two ridings that were within that 6% margin that I've been talking about over the last few weeks. Uh, Trois-Rivières was a three-way race. Uh, The Bloc Québécois won it. Uh, Yves Lévesque, he is a former Trois-Rivières mayor. He ran for the Conservatives last time. He's running again. So there is that chance that they could win that seat this time. The fact that they didn't win it last time with Lévesque on the ballot does hurt their chances a bit, but because it was that three-way split, you could see the same kind of thing happen again and the Conservatives squeak by. Uh, Bopal Limoilou, this was a seat they used to hold. Uh, Lupa Clark, who is a uh, former Conservative MP who was involved in Aaron O'Toole's leadership campaign, is running again for the Conservatives in that seat. It's in the Quebec City area. Uh, that's another riding where doesn't it wouldn't take much for the Conservatives to win it, and it is another of these three-way races where the Liberals are involved in the bloc, and you can have a split that works out in their favor. But while they're looking at those two ridings that they almost won last time, they would have to look at uh, Chicoutimi-le-Fjord, which is in the Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean region. Uh, they only won it by a very, very thin margin. So this is a riding that the Bloc Québécois is going to be trying to win. Uh, Richard Martel is the MP there. He's a former uh, junior hockey coach. Um, that's a seat that the Conservatives will have to fight to keep. So they're not only just looking at offense. The Conservatives are trying to find a stretch goal. You can look to another Quebec City area riding Beauport, Côte de Beaupré, Ile d'Orléans, Charles Lavoie. Again, I, I don't know why some of these ridings have such long names. But that's another option. They were short by about seven points last time. They've held it before. So it is the kind of seat that if the Conservatives have a good campaign in Quebec, they could maybe pick that up. After that, it's very hard to see where they could pick up another riding. All the other seats across the province, they were at least 14 points behind in the last election. So they need to see a big swing to get above uh, the 13-seat mark that would be their ceiling. But based on where things are going in the polls, the fact that the Liberals and the Bloc Québécois look competitive in Quebec in, the, in, the, in an upcoming campaign, winning 10 seats again for the Conservatives would be a pretty good result. There was a time when the Conservatives were thinking they could maybe win 20 seats. I know Andrew Shearer's Conservatives were thinking that was possible going into the last campaign. And there were some brief moments where in the polls, maybe that could have happened. Uh, but I think right now with the way the party is, the way that they're approaching Quebec issues... Uh, Language issues with Aaron O'Toole, not that much better than Andrew Scheer. I think that if the Conservatives can retain their 10 seats in Quebec, that would be a good result for them. 
All right, continuing on with the Every Election Project, my look at Canada's election history. We're going back 93 years to the British Columbia provincial election of July 18th, 1928. The Liberals had been in power in British Columbia now for a few uh, elections. They had last won in 1924 under John Oliver. No, not that John Oliver. They had won three consecutive elections. They'd been in power for a little while, uh, having replaced the Conservatives in British Columbia politics. This was an attempt for them to win a fourth consecutive election, but they didn't have John Oliver as their leader anymore. He had died in 1927, and Cabinet Minister John Duncan MacLean was chosen to replace John Oliver as Liberal leader. The Conservatives at this time were under Simon Fraser Tolmey. He was a somewhat portly Conservative MP. He had previously sat in uh, Robert Borden's cabinet and was a Conservative who was able to win re-election during the 1920s when uh, Mackenzie King's Liberals were in power. When the election in British Columbia was called in 1928, he was still in Ottawa. He was still sitting in the House of Commons, and he had to cross the country in order to get back to BC to campaign for the Conservative Party in British Columbia, and it meant that he lost about you know a week of his campaign just making his way across the country. There are a few issues in this campaign. One was the fate of the Pacific Great Eastern Railway. This was a time when railways were still part of politics. This was a costly and, and somewhat controversial uh, railway that was that was run by the province. And by 1928, there was hope that the Canadian National Railway, CN, uh, would take it off the province's hands. So there was some discussion about what to do with this money-losing proposition. McLean, the Liberal leader, he claimed that he could get a better deal than Ptolemy could because the Liberals were in power in Ottawa and CN was a uh, national railway. This claim was criticized in the province because it, it made it seem like more of a political transaction rather than a straight up business deal, that this was a, about selling this railway to CN, not about doing political favors between liberals in Ottawa and liberals in Victoria. Both the liberals and the conservatives, they promised tax reductions in this. Liberals also said at this point they would take a look at a provincial health insurance scheme. Uh, again, this was in 1928. But apart from that, the liberals largely ran on their record. And the Conservatives didn't really have all that many great ideas, but they benefited from what was becoming a desire for change. Liberals had been in power for a while. The Conservatives were coming with a bit of new energy, and British Columbians were open to that. Because after trailing other parts of North America in the Roaring Twenties, BC's economy was finally starting to perk up by 1928. And Ptolemy's more positive, optimistic view of the future, it had some appeal. Ptolemy was more charismatic than McLean. He was more, he was more down to earth. He had a little folksy appeal. Uh, McLean, on the other hand, was not really all that dynamic. And he also suffered in comparison to his predecessor, John Oliver, who was a much more popular politician. Liberals were nevertheless confident that they could win this election, but the results were quite bad for them. They retained most of their northern seats, but the Conservatives picked up elsewhere in the interior. Uh, the Conservatives under Ptolemy, they made big gains in Vancouver, and they shut the Liberals out of Victoria entirely. When the results were uh, finally counted, the Conservatives won 35 seats. This was a gain of 18 seats from the last election in 1924, and they won 53% of the popular vote. This was a big jump of 24 points for the Conservatives. So really uh, a bit of a wave election for Ptolemy and the Conservatives in BC in 1928. The Liberals, they dropped 11 seats to just 12. They took 40% of the vote. This was actually an increase in their share of the vote, uh, but it wasn't nearly as much as the increase of the vote for the Conservatives. There's also one 
MLA from the Independent Labour Party, he was elected. Uh, the ILP took 5% of the vote across the province. Those were the only three parties that elected MLAs to the legislature. McLean was not one of them. He was defeated in his own riding, and he would be defeated again when he decided to try to run for federal office to fill the seat that was vacated by Tolmy making the switch from federal to provincial politics. Tolmy's uh, premiership, it started off well. The economy continued to boom in British Columbia. But remember, this was 1928. The stock market crashed in 1929, and his government was hit very hard by the Depression. They really had no ability to handle it, and it led to their complete wipeout in 1933 and the return of the Liberals to power in that election. In fact, 1928 would be the last election won by the BC Conservative Party. And that'll be it for the podcast this week. Thanks to everybody who has subscribed to the website, theRit.ca. And if you haven't yet, you can go there and subscribe and get access to all the content. It's going to be a pretty busy summer. So I'll be back next week. And until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>